Turn with me to Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 15. We are going to start in the depths of darkness, but we will ascend to the light, I promise. Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 15, I would like for you to feel the weight of what it means to reject God. Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall your, be your basket in your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall, over, they shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. And the Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. And you shall not prosper in your ways. And you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually. And there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. The Lord will strike you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils of which you cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone and you shall become a horror, a proverb and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. 
The cricket shall possess all your trees and the fruit of your ground. The sojourner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, and you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. The most tender and refined woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender, will begrudge to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns." If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening, and at evening you shall say, if only it were morning. 
because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promised that you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. Terrible, terrible curses. Is that the end of the story of Israel? Is that the end of the history of Israel being defeated by these curses that no single human being could creatively think of all of those things? Only a righteous, holy, wrathful God could come up with every way possible to bring a curse upon those who would disobey Him. Well, Deuteronomy is the story of God's covenant with Israel, in particular, the renewal of God's covenant with the second generation of Israel. And so is that the end of the story? Well, Deuteronomy would say no. We've seen that Deuteronomy very much follows a classic ancient Near Eastern suzerain vassal treaty. I won't explain that to you again. It's a treaty or a covenant made between a conquering or rescuing king and the dependent small nation or people. And so far we've seen in this classic structure in Deuteronomy a preamble and historical prologue. We've seen the general stipulations of the covenant headed up by the restatement of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5. We've seen in the specific stipulations, the Ten Commandments now worked out in daily life, and that's the bulk of the book from chapter 12 to 26. And now we find ourselves in the section commonly called Blessings and Curses. Now, last time in chapter 27, God prescribed that once Israel crossed the Jordan River, and remember, they're on the plains of Moab getting ready to go into the Promised Land, but once they crossed the Jordan River, they were to be divided into two companies— And they were to stand opposite each other on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, representing the curses and blessings of God, depending on their disobedience or their obedience. And on these mountains, potential curses for disobedience, as we saw in chapter 27, were to be shouted out by the Levites, and all the people were to affirm, Amen, as a witness against themselves, that they had signed on the dotted line. They had affirmed their covenant with God. And we mentioned that if you put the blessings and curses of chapters 27 and 28 together, the basic structure might sound something like this. Curses, blessings, curses, 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 curses. Just to make certain. And we said last week that this is in line with a classic treaty, a classic covenant in the ancient Near East that gave a few blessings and countless curses. There was a definite threat factor to disobeying the suzerain, the, the, the great king. Now, clearly, from the massive section of chapter 28 that we've just read, God is extremely serious about disobedience. And in fact, history has shown these curses to have come upon Israel in increasing degrees. The fall of Israel to both Assyria and Babylon was eventually followed by a great civil war and a time of unrest in the time between the Testaments. After Israel rejected Christ and crucified her king, Jerusalem fell to Rome in 70 AD with over 1 million Jews killed and about 60,000 of them enslaved. The Colosseum in Rome was built by the enslaved Jews from the fall of Jerusalem. And in the past 2,000 years, Jews everywhere have suffered and suffered and suffered 
most notably in recent history in the Holocaust, in which six million Jews were horrifically slaughtered by Nazi Germany. And today, although there is an official nation of Israel, less than half of all the Jews in the world live there. And so they are not regathered in any statistical sense at all, and certainly not in a spiritual sense. They have not nationally repented of rejecting Christ. And so has Israel regathered? Not in the sense that Scripture would foretell. And the nation is even now constantly under barrage of actual attack. There is a constant threat to their very existence by nations and peoples who want them wiped off the planet to cease to exist as a nation. But our guide is the Bible and the Bible alone. And so what is to be our stance concerning Israel? Let me just read some scripture to you. Here is our stance. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." You're a nation holy to the Lord, chosen by God, a treasured possessions, more, treasured possession more than all the peoples on the earth. The Lord has set his love on her. That's God's view. And from Israel has come our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. With great emotion, Paul wrote in Romans 9, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Listen to this that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In Romans 11, Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And later on in chapter 11, he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening, a spiritual hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And he says in verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The redemptive plan of God for the world has as a major component the future restoration of Israel. So what are we as Gentile Christians supposed to do? We're supposed to follow what Psalm 122.6 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. In fact, the promises of a restored national Israel, these are major components of the Old Testament. You cannot understand the Old Testament properly without seeing this. In fact, just a brief reading of the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, All of them show this basic theme. Judgment is coming for disobedience. See also Deuteronomy 28, verse 15 through a million. 
But restoration and forgiveness and peace and a coming kingdom is coming after. That's the Old Testament. And what we have in the blessings section of Deuteronomy 27 and 28, a short section, admittedly, verses 1 through 14 of Deuteronomy 28, is a brief description of that kingdom that is coming. And so that's what we'd like to focus on. Now, as we look at this coming kingdom in verses 1 through 14, there's some overall characteristics of this kingdom time that we should point out first. It helps set the context, helps kind of set the framework for this coming kingdom. First of all, this kingdom time can only be after the national repentance of Israel. This kingdom time can only be after the national repentance of Israel. Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. We see elsewhere in the book of Zechariah that during the time of the great tribulation, one third of Israel will repent and will be saved, thus forming a new Israel. When does this happen? Well, this happens at or near the end of the great tribulation as described in Daniel 9, Daniel 12, and all of Revelation 6 through 19. Daniel 12, verse 1, for example, says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, that's the angel, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. The second idea we should have to understand this kingdom time, the kingdom cannot be the final state of blessing of the new heavens and the new earth. This kingdom cannot be the final state of blessing of the new heavens and the new earth. Neither is it the current age. It must be something in between. How do we know this? Well, this kingdom still includes attempted rebellions and insurrections by non-Israelite nations. So this can't be speaking of the final state of blessing with the new heavens and new earth as described in Revelation 21 and 22. Also, there is still marriage. There is still the birth of children. And so there is a a mixture of peoples. The descendants of the survivors of the Great Tribulation and the already glorified, resurrected saints of the church age who are now back on earth according to Revelation 19. So the kingdom cannot be the final state of blessing. We would also say a third component to understand the kingdom has one major factor and that is the presence of the true king of Israel, Jesus Christ. That's what makes the difference. Jesus is on the earth. Isaiah 9, beginning of verse 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Merry Christmas, it keeps going, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. That's future. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, we have a nickname for this kingdom time. We often call it the Millennial Kingdom. And not because it's populated by people born between 1981 and 96. But because Revelation 20 indicates six times that this kingdom will last 1,000 years. The Old Testament is filled with information about the millennial kingdom. The book of Isaiah alone is a rich resource. In fact, we'll go there in a few minutes. 
But for our purposes today, we'll just focus, focus our thoughts on the promised blessings of Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14, now that we kind of have some parameters for this coming kingdom. But one last question before we go forward in time. Why will there be a millennial kingdom? Why not just skip directly to the final state of the new heavens and the new earth? Why not have a simplified eschatology whereby Christ simply returns, everything is made new, and we're done? Why not do that? Well, primarily, the millennial kingdom is a way for God to fulfill literally all of his promises to Israel. And it is a way for Israel to have a time to obey God and receive those blessings. And we see in the book of Ezekiel this unusual idea that the sacrifices will be reinstituted. Many of the feasts will be reinstituted. And we've talked about this in other contexts, but that is basically so that Israel has a chance to put it this way, to do a a do-over, to obey God and receive the national blessings that God always wanted to pour on them. So it's a time when Israel will keep the law of God and be blessed in tremendous abundance as a result. And so let's travel forward in time now. This is after the rapture and resurrection of the church age saints, that's us, after the great tribulation, after the judgment and casting into hell of Antichrist and his false prophet. What will life in God's blessed Israel be like? What was his original intent? Well, I just want to label these blessings, and we'll label eight different blessings. First of all, the first blessing we'll call the blessing of preeminence. The blessing of preeminence. Chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Do you hear the opposite of all the curses already? Look at verse 13. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall only go up and not down. These are important promises. Israel will be high above all the nations of the earth. Verse 1. They will be the head and not the tail. Verse 13. Just as we've seen in recent history, maybe not quite so much anymore, but in recent history, the United States, in many ways, has been the leading nation on earth in terms of prosperity and contribution to the world. Israel will now be considered by all to be the capital nation of the world. Yes, nationalism will exist. This is God's will. Zechariah 14 pictures nations in all their glory, but they clearly submit to Israel in terms of who's the leading nation on earth. Now, you remember the long, specific stipulation section of Deuteronomy 12 through 26. Look back with me at the end of chapter 26. Look at the very last promise for obedience to all these specific stipulations. Chapter 26, verse 19. Let's start in verse 18, actually. Chapter 26, verse 18. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. And so in chapter 28, really for the first time in history, the national purpose of Israel will be realized. It will be fulfilled. 
What is the national purpose of Israel? Exodus 19, beginning in verse 5. Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth, all the earth is mine. Here's the purpose statement of the nation of Israel. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. There are to be a kingdom of priests. In other words, they are the ones through whom the world knows the living and true God. And of course, the central feature of Israel will be, as always, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital city of the Bible. Jeremiah 33, 9 says, And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. A little side note here. Not only will Israel be preeminent and Jerusalem preeminent, Jerusalem will not only spiritually be the high point of earth, it will literally be the high point of the earth after the great tribulation. Did you know that? Isaiah 2, verse 1 says, The word that Isaiah the son of Amoz saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, that is Jerusalem, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And you might say, well, that's just symbolic that Jerusalem is the highest place on earth. Kind of like we might say Washington, D.C. is the highest place in the United States, but it's not actually elevation-wise. But that's not true. During the Great Tribulation, at the very end, as part of the seventh bowl judgment, Revelation 16, 18 tells of the greatest earthquake in the history of the world. And how great is it? Revelation 16, 20, every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. Bad time to go to Hawaii at that moment. Just to make sure we're clear, Zechariah 14, 10, at the return of Christ, says the whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem shall remain aloft. What will be the literal high point of the earth? It'll be Jerusalem. Why is that important? You remember in the Garden of Eden, four rivers flowed from the center of the garden. Why do, where, which direction do rivers flow? They flow downhill. The Garden of Eden was the highest point on earth. It was the temple of God on earth, and that is now restored in the city of Jerusalem. And so Israel will receive the blessing of preeminence. There's a second blessing. They'll receive the blessing of place. P-L-A-C-E, the blessing of place. And I want to take some time to develop the theology of the blessing of place. Look at verse 3. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. And then verse 6. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Now, what is this? I'm blessed in the city, blessed in the field, blessed when I'm indoors, blessed when I'm outdoors. This is a literary device called a merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. And a merism uses two contrasting parts of something to represent the whole thing. You use merisms all the time. You probably don't even know it. I searched high and low. What does that mean? Everywhere. The very first verse of the Bible uses a merism. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Two contrasting parts that mean everything. Now here, the merism has to do with location, with whatever place Israel is in. When they're in the city or out in the field, when they're indoors, whether they're outdoors, 
Everywhere they go, they're blessed of God. Every space they occupy is filled with blessing. There is no more, oh, I wish I could move to Idaho or Texas or Alaska. No, you would say, I want to live where the Israelites are. Because everywhere they go is blessed. Now, this is something we really have trouble comprehending Because in our walk with the Lord as believers in Christ, there's something that we have to learn very quickly, and that is that being a Christian involves learning to wait on the Lord. That's what being a Christian is about. That being a Christian involves the faith to not see God's blessing in many ways now, but looking forward to it later. That being a Christian involves seeing God do some things now, but most things will be later. Yes, the psalmist writes in Psalm 27, 13, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, that there are some blessings we can expect now. But immediately the psalmist follows this up with a sobering reality. In the very next verse, he says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So what does it mean for Israel that they're blessed in every place they occupy? Essentially, it means that the idea of waiting upon the Lord is over with, is done. The Lord's blessings are raining down on them. Remember, at the beginning of the the curses in verse 15, it says, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. It's the idea of running and yet these monsters, these curses are just coming after you and they're going to come and devour you. But now it's the opposite. Verse 2, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. The word overtake you is the idea of something catching up to you. Now that is a glorious thought. That the tremendous blessings of God are following, following you around, gaining speed as it were, And in the coming kingdom of Christ, they'll all catch up, every one of them. Isn't that a great thought, that the blessings of God are following you and you just need to wait? Now, just in case you're wondering, hey, what about us Gentiles? Remember, as part of the church age saints, which we are, you've already, during this time now, you've been resurrected. You're reigning with Christ on earth in perfect and eternal, perfect bodies That on earth during this time, there will be those in their glorified bodies alongside those descendants of the survivors of the great tribulation, not yet in glorified bodies. And so what will this be like, even with those who are in their unglorified bodies? We do get a hint from scripture that even among the unglorified, lifespans seem to be returning to a pre-flood type of lifespan of many hundreds of years. In fact, let me show you a little more what this blessing of place looks like. Turn with me to Isaiah 65, and then we'll come back to Deuteronomy 28. Isaiah 65 contains a compression of events. In other words, it it speaks of many things at one time. And we do this all the time. Uh, You might say, I raised my children this such and such a way. Well, that doesn't account for how you raise them as babies, as toddlers, as small children, and so forth. It's one statement that encompasses a compression of many events. And Isaiah 65 does the same thing. Beginning in verse 17, it speaks of both the new heavens and the new earth, the final state, the final state of blessing yet to come, but it also speaks of a kingdom time between this age and the final state. It presents them as one, and yet they're very clear distinctions we can find Uh, particularly the presence of death is still on the earth, so this cannot be speaking only of the final state. 
But look at what this blessing of place, of being blessed in the city, in the field, when you come in, when you go out. Look at what this will be like. Isaiah 65, verse 19. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. What a contrast to the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon in 586, before which, and this was predicted in the curses of Deuteronomy 28, people in that time of siege were eating their children. What a contrast to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD when a million Jews were slaughtered. Verse 20. No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. And the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. The descendants of the survivors of the great tribulation will have, be having babies and babies. And infant mortality is eradicated. It's done. And a man who dies at the age of 100 will be considered young and under the curse of God. Now, based on this, we don't get a lot of information as to when the redeemed yet still unglorified saints of this time, when they will die and be resurrected. But it may be that like Elijah and Enoch of the Old Testament, the faithful will simply live to the end of the millennial reign of Christ and are translated without death into their immortal state. We can't say that for sure, but it sure seems to be the implication that during this time, the ones who die are the ones still cursed, still unsaved. Look at verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Did you see that? People will be like the days of a tree. They'll long enjoy the work of their hands. The days of a tree indicates long life. The days of a tree. You know, when uh, I was a young man and first we bought our first house, we bought little tiny trees, little bitty ones, because we said we have years and years to watch them grow. The older you get, you buy the trees a little more mature, don't you? Because I, I got to get this thing in the ground now. Instead of paying $5 for something a foot high, I'm paying $500 for something 20 feet high. Because I don't have time to sit around and watch the tree grow. I'm not going to be here. But this is a time when you can plant an acorn and watch an oak tree grow. You can plant a seed and watch a sequoia grow. Verse 23. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. No more tragedy with children. The descendants of the Jews will be saved and blessed of the Lord. This is a truly saved nation. And remember that waiting on the Lord seems to be a thing of the past. How about this for answers to prayer? Verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Lord, I think that I would like... Oh, there it is. Lord, I'm asking you for... Oh, there it is. No more waiting on the Lord. And even the nature of the creation will be changed. Verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. little interesting side note here. It's interesting that all of creation seems to be elevated except the snakes. 
Now, we're still going to remember, why is this? Because during this time, Satan is bound, but he is not judged. Not yet. This is the blessing of place. Turn back with me to Deuteronomy 28. We'll go a little faster now. The third blessing we'll call the blessing of prosperity. The blessing of prosperity. The rest of these are really going to be kind of the obvious conclusions to the first two blessings. The blessing of prosperity is found in three places. Deuteronomy 28, verse 4. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. It's found also in verse 8. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And it's found in verse 11. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. Three times, fruitfulness, fruitfulness, fruitfulness. Why is this? You get this triple statement. What was God's original command to mankind? What was the purpose for which we were created? This is the purpose statement of the Pentateuch and the purpose statement of the Bible. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so according to this triple blessing here, how are God's people being blessed? Well, they're being blessed first in the fruit of the womb. Strong, healthy babies, one after another, after another, after another. They're being blessed in the fruit of the ground. We've said before that Amos chapter 9 pictures multiple growing and harvest seasons every year. Then instead of growing wheat one time in the summertime, Amos 9 pictures the plowman, the ones getting the soil ready for planting, catching up to the harvesters. And the implication is that the seed is going into the ground immediately because after the crops uh, are going to get going right then, just over and over again, immediately. You know, when I was growing up, my picture of farmers was that they were poor and struggling. And that has been the picture of farmers for many, many, many millennia. Why is that? Because of the curse of the ground. For thousands of years, farmers have struggled to scratch a living from the ground. But in an ideal environment, the farmers are literally growing wealth multiple times a year. They're just growing money. And how about the fruit of the livestock? that the herds and the flocks of God's people will be multiplying and again, growing wealth incessantly. Now you may have noticed here that God is describing an essentially agrarian society. The Bible doesn't really address what sort of technology will be around or even needed, but we've said this before. Think about this. What is technology primarily used for? It's primarily used to save what? Time. Because we don't have much of it. But now we'll have all the time in the world. And the world will be restored to a more idyllic existence where there's no need to hurry except maybe to get out of the way of the plowman who's trying to get the ground ready for the seed. I mean, if you could throw seed in the ground and it was growing money instantly, wouldn't you be in a hurry? That's what they're enjoying. And this makes the fourth blessing, 
very obvious. Fourth, the blessing of provision. The blessing of provision. We see this in verse 5. The blessing of provision. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. The basket and the kneading bowl where you would put dough for bread. This represents food storage and preparation. Never again will God's people lack or worry about provision. I, I can't wrap my mind around being so desperate to eat that you are hiding your last dead child from your husband or your wife or your children or, or other family members, I guess. You're hiding that a woman would hide her afterbirth because there's nothing else to eat. Never again. This is a picture of the pantries and the shelves and the kitchens and the barns of God's people full to overflowing with good things, the glorious produce of the ground, bread and treats, delights of food in such abundance that never ever will a family wonder what they might eat. I don't usually use movie references because they date really fast and people will listen to this message in, in 10 years and go, oh, that was an old message. But I love the movie version of the book, The Hobbit. Because at the beginning, these dwarves come and visit the hobbit. And they are throwing food. They're digging out cheeses and breads and all kinds of good things. And it's just literally food being thrown around the house, stacked up on the table everywhere. That's the picture of abundance. Just open up pantry and closet and you open it up and food is just running out. That's quite a contrast to the curses of Verses 38 and 39, you shall carry much seed into the field and gather in little, for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. One of the great parts of the curse that we, of the world we live in now is that people literally still starve to death. With all of the technology, all the resources we have, people still starve, but not here. But there will still be sinners in the world. Gentile descendants of survivors of the Great Tribulation will still have a sin nature, still be tempted to make trouble in the world. And so will this idyllic existence of God's people be threatened at all? Well, it brings us to a fifth blessing. We'll call this one the blessing of protection. The blessing of protection. In verse 7. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. And so in the providence of God, every once in a while, those who have begun to hate Israel will be taught a hard lesson all while Israel lives in peace. In fact, the grammatical structure of the verb translated to be defeated indicates it's both repeated and passive. What does that mean? It means that every time the enemies of God make some sort of attempted attack, God will cause their defeat. Now think about this. In the millennial kingdom, Isaiah 2.4 says, He shall judge between many nations, this is Christ, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they, most likely speaking specifically of the Jews, shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so this sort of invasion won't be a common occurrence, but it appears that Israel won't even need a standing military. They won't need it. 
And in the ultimate attack on Israel at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, we already know what happens. Satan had been bound by Christ during this time of, his, of Christ's reign on earth, but he gets one more chance. Revelation 20 verse 7 says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Can you imagine the joy and peace in Israel knowing that you're completely impervious to any attack or danger? You see the armies gathering around you you don't get your weapons, you get your popcorn. And you just say, hey, let's watch this. And the Lord Jesus gets, gets off, off his throne and says, give me a moment. We'll take care of this. According to Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 9, really the whole world will be under the dominion of Christ. Any rebellions will be punished harshly and quickly taken care of. Don't we long for that now? Don't you long for that now? Don't you long to see these godless and lawless rioters that just suddenly be swept away or saved, one of the two, but stopped. There's a sixth blessing. We'll call this one the blessing of power. The blessing of power. We find this blessing in verse 10. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. There will be a global recognition and a fear of Israel. All peoples will see and know that this is God's chosen people. Now, by the way, what does this mean about any attempted attacks and rebellions back from verse 7? It means that these attacks were done with full knowledge that this is God's people. There's no ignorance. It was done with full knowledge. We remember that Christ is reigning on earth at this point. He'll clearly defend his own. Israel will be free at all times to call upon the omnipotent power of her Messiah and Anyone who mistreats God's people does so to his own judgment and regret. That's certainly not the case today. You know, one thing that uh, Israel doesn't generally have a problem with is patriotism. You want to know why? The state of Israel requires every citizen, male and female, over the age of 18 to serve in the Israel Defense Forces. Why is that? Because other people's including some in our own Congress, want to wipe Israel off the planet. Men are expected to serve for 32 months. Women expected to serve for 24 months. What does this mean? It means that every adult citizen in Israel can handle lethal weapons and can fight to preserve their nation. The Israel Defense Forces have identified four major threats to the existence and the survival of Israel. Hamas, Hezbollah, the Palestinians, and the nation of Iran, who often uses Syria to attack Israel, Israel is essentially at war all the time. If you read the history of Israel, going all the way back to about 1947 when the, when the nation was founded once again, they've been at war continually. But unlike the United States, the wars they fight are at their own borders. And by the way, they're undefeated. How do we know this? Because they're still there. But someday, as we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, all this will change. Israel will nationally look to Christ as their Savior. Christ will return. And instead of putting him on a cross this time, they will put Christ on the throne. 
And finally, God's people can get to enjoy the land deeded to them in the Abrahamic covenant some 4,000 years ago. By the way, the biblical description of the boundaries of Israel is five times bigger than Israel of today. From the Nile River to the Euphrates, it encompasses all of the disputed territory today, the Gaza Strip, uh, the, the West Bank, the area that the Palestinians say is theirs. It's all Israel's, according to Scripture. And the world will fear them. Because the world will remember that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, when he returned, he came down, he struck down his enemies with a word, and that the birds were eating the carcasses of Christ's enemies for months, and that the bones of Christ's enemies littered the highways and the byways for years. And that every once in a while, if someone gets a bright idea of rebellion, Israel merely looks on as King Yeshua, the son of Yahweh, And God, very God, briefly steps off his throne to speak a word of decimation against the enemies of his people. There's a seventh blessing we'll call the blessing of progress. The blessing of progress, first part of verse 12 says, The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. The presence of rain is a sign of God's blessing. We think of the opposite such as 1 Kings 17 when drought was a sign of God's punishment, God's curse. The Canaanite peoples of this area, when Israel first came, used to, when they used to populate what is now Israel, they attempted to manipulate and coerce their gods, such as Baal and Asherah, in desperate hope for all the blessings that Israel would receive from the true and living God. Every year, these peoples made terrible human sacrifices trying to coerce Baal into giving them rain, But the true and living God will give these blessings abundantly because of his love and his mercy. And so the people of Israel will experience the work of their hands being blessed. In other words, they get to keep what they earn, keep what they grow, keep what they make, keep what they develop. I I like to do a little bit of woodworking here and there, and I have been responsible for the destruction of more trees. Needlessly, I have made projects that literally just turn into a bonfire. Because, okay, this thing sits this way. You put a marble on it and it rolls off. Books fall off of it. Let's have a bonfire. Everything they touch will be blessed. Everything they make. This is quite a contrast to the curses we read. In fact, uh, the curses of verse 31, verses 30 and 31, you shall betroth the wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. This is a, a pretty accurate description of the history of the Jews over the past 2,000 years. In fact, as the facts concerning the Holocaust of World War II came to light, it was discovered that as Jews were packed up and shipped from their hometowns, they were often told to bring their most valuable possessions because we're going to start you over in a new place and you can build your homes and your businesses. That's what they were told. But as we know from history, it was a sham. The money and the possessions and the jewels, even down to the gold in the teeth of the Jews, were all taken from them as they were herded into the more than 1,000 different concentration camps throughout Europe, the worst, of course, being Auschwitz, which was responsible for the murder of 1.1 million Jews in that camp alone. Everything that they had taken from them, everything they'd spent a lifetime to earn, stolen, 
even down to their very lives, even down to their clothing. But never again, never again, the wealth and the progress that a family makes will stay in the family and will stay in the nation. And never again will a wicked king or a ruler extract exorbitant taxes from its citizens. What you make and what you earn, you keep. By the way, you want to know what a godly economy is? You study what the millennial economy will be like. And you will find it has very, very little similarity to our economy today. One more blessing. An eighth blessing we'll call the blessing of position. The blessing of position. Israel, under the blessing and the protection of Christ, will enjoy the greatest free market economy in the history of humanity, and the nation as a whole will enjoy that position. Look with me in verse 12 once again. The Lord will open you as good treasury the heavens to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. In other words, the International Bank of Israel will be open for business. And in fact, this will help the world's economy just like any solid investment does. Zechariah 14 says that year by year, the nations will come to Jerusalem to worship Christ. And if they don't, then no rain will fall on those nations. What are they bringing with them year by year? Isaiah 61, 5 and 6 says that you shall eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory you shall boast. The nations are bringing their glory, which is a word that is often used to mean their wealth, all the things that make them what they are, both as gifts of gratitude and very likely as repayment of national loans in gratitude for Israel bolstering their economy. It's very ironic to me that an often repeated and a derogatory insult about Jews concerns the stereotype of making money and being miserly and accruing wealth and more wealth. And in fact, the word Jew is even still used as a verb in a very insulting manner to speak of trying to get the very best deal possible. I think it is a sweet irony and a paradox when in fact Israel is the wealthiest nation on earth. No one will be making jokes then. They'll be too busy filling out loan applications. And so Israel is going to receive the blessing of preeminence, of place, of prosperity, of provision, of protection, of power, of progress, of position. And that is marvelous. Except for one thing. There's only one problem. This blessing is conditional. And that condition is stated three times in this series of blessings. Verse 1. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today. Verse 9, the Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Verse 13, the second half, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods, To serve them. The title of this message is Genuine Covenant Salvation. But who can be genuine under that standard? Because now we have a problem. The condition of enjoying this coming kingdom is perfect, faithful obedience to God and His law. Romans 3, 10 and 11 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. James uh, 2.10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has been guilty of all of it. 
Romans 3.20 says, and this is a death sentence for all of us, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, what the law of God ultimately accomplishes is simply to provide a standard by which you can see that you have failed. That never in a million years can you measure up to God's righteousness and holiness. And in fact, if I've sinned once, I'm already guilty of everything. And so I can't even make progress toward righteousness. I am already unrighteous. The only condition by which the Jew or Gentile may enjoy this coming kingdom is by perfectly keeping the law. Which means we're doomed and we're destined for hell. So what did God do? Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. You could never keep the perfect, righteous, holy standards of Christ. You could never pay the rightful penalty for your sin And so the Lord Jesus Christ took care of both. He lived a perfect law-abiding life which he offered to the Father in exchange for your failed sinful life. And he died on the cross to pay the full and complete penalty for every sin you would ever commit. Why? So that we can be like the thief on the cross who cried out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your what? Kingdom. And when Jesus is coming into his kingdom, you will be with him. Revelation 19 says this, you will experience the joy and the delight of a world dominated by Israel and Jerusalem and Christ as you reign with him all over the world. Because Revelation 20 verse 6 says that you will be priests of God and of Christ and you will reign with him for a thousand years. Amen. We have a lot to look forward to. Don't let the things in this life discourage you too much because good stuff's coming. Let's pray. Our Father, how exciting Deuteronomy 28 is to us. And while that I'm aware of, none of us here are part of national Israel. Oh, we receive all the blessings that come to your beloved nation. We we receive the blessing of Christ. We've been grafted into this glorious nation. We love you and thank you for the coming days, Lord. Our days on this earth are short. They're fleeting. They're fast. We can measure them in minutes. And so, Lord, we look forward to a thousand years when Christ is reigning and crushing his enemies and blessing his people. Give us an eye to the future, Lord, so that we might live for you now in a way that's pleasing to you. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.